What a fun bumper that is. That's exciting. It's great to come up after that. Well done. Well, good morning, church. Welcome to those of you joining us online. My name is Chad Myers. We're in our series, Sing Loud, Die Happy. And I saw you this morning. You got a little charismatic. I saw the hands raised. I saw you. Good job. What a privilege to be with you this morning. Series, Sing Loud, Die Happy from a pastor, a book from a pastor in Greenville. And that's actually the artwork on the cover. I actually, I really like this artwork. It's kind of fun. It's a skeleton, skelfy. And uh, he's happy because he's died happy and obviously singing and sung loud. He's got a guitar and a little bluebird there. And uh, last week, Grace Marie kicked us off on why we should sing. And she probably sang 60% of her message. And I'm not gonna do that for you. I'm gonna let her have that stage. But uh, singing has actually been a huge part of my life. Uh, I, I grew up in church. I grew up starting choir in middle school uh, in sixth grade. And I sang. And then I was in like show choirs and little ensembles in the church and in the school. And then I would engage in these little competitions. And I actually was a music major in college. That's how I met my wife at CIU. We were both music majors. And uh, we were in the same group of friends with Grace Marie. And so there would be singing and they'd grab a guitar and play. And uh, singing has been a huge part of my life. That's actually my first job in ministry. I was a youth worship leader and I would lead like these little, you know, middle school little church rock bands, you know what I mean? And then high school worship bands. And I started doing that, but then I kind of on the side started to teach a little bit and they gave me more opportunities to teach and preach. So it kind of, I really enjoyed doing that and it kind of turned into that. And so I don't sing as much anymore. So I'm not going to sing for you in this sermon this morning. I'm sorry to disappoint you. I see you there. Um, but, uh, it's like a muscle that I haven't used in a while. So I'm not going to try to flex it. And, um, but I do want to talk about today, uh, is how we sing. Grace Marie talked about why we sing, and I would like to talk about how we sing, not specifically the technique as much as how do we engage our person in worship through song. So let's pray and let's dive in. Father, thank you for this opportunity to be together, to be in your presence, to see you, to hear from you, to sing to you. I pray that you would pierce through our hearts, reveal yourself to us, set your gaze upon us, and let us See your beauty, your truth, your goodness. Speak to us each as we need, and may we have ears to hear. In Christ's name, amen. I read a short story uh, about a year ago by a Russian author named Ivan Turgenev, written in 1852. It's simply called The Singers. And it takes place in this dry and dreary and drab Russian mountain village inside of a pub where they're gonna have a singing competition. And this traveler comes through, he's a sojourner, he comes through and all he's known as is, is the contractor. And the contractor comes into the singing competition and he's decided he's gonna sing first. And he opens up his mouth to sing and he has a very strong, powerful, beautiful, skillful voice. He sings baritone and bass. He sings second tenor and first tenor. And his transition and his runs and how he puts it all together, people are captivated. And he continues to sing his song towards the end and he starts to realize that they're giving him some participation and feedback and some are standing and they're clapping and their eyes are getting really big. So he's encouraged by the signs of this general satisfaction. And the book says that he let himself go and he went off into 
such flourishes and drummings and playfulness when at last, exhausted, pale, and bathed in hot perspiration, he threw himself back and let out one last note and immediately a loud burst of general exclamation and applause was from the group celebrating his song. And then in the competition enters Yashka, a local villager. He's fearful, he's trepid, but he begins to sing. And his voice was described as a little broken, sounded a little cracked, but it began to ring. And as he began to sing more, they started to realize that he sang with deep, genuine passion and sweetness. And the author says that he had a charmingly, easily concealed, but revealed mourning grief. And he began to sing and come to the end of his song, and they started to realize that he had been singing songs about their home that were vast and yet wide, songs that felt like a boundless distance. And towards the end of his song, one member in the audience felt tears welling up in their eyes. And then they suddenly became aware of dull, muffled sobs. Looking around, people were weeping. One person was so entranced, they just stared with their mouth open. One looked down, one looked away. They were overcome with emotion. And finally, he ended on his last note to utter silence. You see, one singer sang very skillfully, and one singer sang very soulfully. I want to talk today about singing from the soul, singing with our whole being, singing with our heart. What does it mean to engage in worship through song with our heart? And you may say, well, I love singing. This is my jam. I, I sing all the time in the car. I turn it up or I come to church. And I'm happy to say this series is for you. But you may be here and you may be like, it's not quite my thing. Like I get what we're trying to do, but I have some obstacles and it's not really something I enjoy and it comes difficult for me for whatever reason. This series is for you also. And today, I don't just want to talk about the surface. I want to get into the depths. Let's talk about singing with our whole being. And what does it look like to worship with our hearts? And as an overflow, then worship with our lips. When the weather gets nice, I, I have this early morning ritual that I like to do. I get up, it's dark outside, my coffee is just as dark, and I go out on the back porch, and often there's still the moon shining, but I sit there and I pray or I meditate or I listen to worship music, and I start to watch the moon fade away and the sun come out. And one of my favorite sounds, though, is as creation is waking up, I start to hear the birds. And all the birds begin to sing, and I just begin to listen to them. And there's mockingbirds, and we see cardinals, and we see sparrows. And I'm not Grace Marie, but I'm sure there's a lot of other birds out there singing. And we have a little hummingbird feeder, and you can see the little hummingbirds fighting and flitting towards each other. And they have their little noises that they're making. And all creation is waking up the dawn, and they're singing their song back to the Creator as it should be. Listen to Psalm 96, 11 through 12. It says this, let the heavens rejoice. Let the earth be glad. Let the sea resound and all that is in it. Let the fields be jubilant and everything in them. Let all the trees of the forest sing for what? For joy. 
Did you hear the descriptive words that the poet put here for us to talk about how all of creation sings? Rejoice, be glad, all that's in it, jubilant, sing for joy. All of creation sings its joyful song back to God. We're actually the only part of creation that can resist that, that sometimes chooses to resist that because of our fallen brokenness. We don't exclaim and delight and sing those songs with all creation. It's embedded in creation to sing back to God. Many of you know the beloved series, The Chronicles of Narnia, starting with The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Now, here's the thing. That's the most famous one. That's the beginning of the series, and you're supposed to start in that order, and then when you get to the end, there's another book that chronologically goes back in time, and it's called The Magician's Nephew, and it talks about the beginning of Narnia, the creation of Narnia. And do you know how Aslan creates Narnia in The Magician's Nephew? He sings it into being. It's embedded and ingrained in the DNA of creation to give to God, back to God, the song that he sung in the beginning. And you may say, well, I, I, don't, I don't sing a lot. I don't, I don't really connect with this. I don't necessarily sing. But the truth is this. We sing about what we love. We say things about what we love. We talk about what we enjoy and what our affections are. If you like golf, you're going to talk about it. If you like Moe's Burritos on Monday, you're gonna talk about it. If you like the Avengers series, you're gonna have posters and you're gonna talk about it. And you're gonna to go to the movies. If you like hosting people at your houses for dinner parties, you're gonna talk about it. My point is this, our mouths reveal what our hearts feel. So if we can be aware of what's coming out of our mouths and the praise of our lips, it might show us where the affections of our hearts lie. C.S. Lewis put it like this in his reflection on the Psalms. I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. It is its appointed consummation. It's not out of compliment that lovers keep on telling one another how beautiful they are. The delight is incomplete until it is expressed. We do this naturally all the time. Our hearts delight in something and then we want to express it so that we can complete the process of delight. We praise things all the time. Our favorite books, our favorite people, our favorite songs, we praise them. And it's a revelation of the heart. If we delight in it, we declare it. So, what I'd like to do this morning is give us four obstacles of expressions of the heart and three pathways. And we gotta be brief on them because that's seven. You did your math right. Four obstacles to the expressions of the heart and three pathways. One of the expressions that blocks us worshiping through song is firstly this, and this will only connect with some people in the room, is that we've been conditioned in the West, singing is just not very masculine. It's not very manly. Like you don't think about a tough guy with a big old beard and a rifle over his shoulder singing a song. Kids, in going into middle school, there's not a lot of boys signing up to go into choir. You know what I mean? They're like, I'll play football, flag football, baseball. Um, is hunting a thing? Like I can do that, right? Can the school provide, like that's what they wanna do. But I would argue that's more of a cultural thing. And if you look at other cultures, you actually see the more masculine temperaments expressing themselves through song. 
and unashamed to show affection. I have a picture here of the Brazilian uh, World Cup team singing their national anthem before they go to play. Look at those expressions. Look at those kids, that's fantastic. They're singing loud, they're unselfconscious. They're not worried about whether we're gonna think they're masculine or not, or whether they're tough or they're great athletes. They love their country, they love the sport, they love the national anthem, and they're gonna show it, so they begin to sing it. Secondly, one of the obstacles of expression of the heart is often in our Christian worship experience and Christian music, it feels emotionally one-sided. It feels emotionally one-sided. Sometimes you get this notion that everything's just supposed to be happy and everything's just supposed to be fantastic and everything's just supposed to be great. And if I just have enough faith in God, then I'm always gonna be joyful. And what's wrong with me that I'm not always joyful and all the music kind of points us this way and we're supposed to be amped up and loud and celebratory. And here's the thing, that is good and it's true and it's beautiful, but it's only one side of the story. It's only one side of the spectrum. Many of you know the book of, of Psalms. And in the book of Psalms, there's probably five to seven different types of Psalms, different genres of Psalms, and one of them is lament. And a lament is a desperate cry. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's Psalm 22, and Jesus picks that up on the cross. Where are you, God? Why are you so far from me? I'm sick and I need help. I feel lost. I'm overwhelmed. My couch is flooded with all my tears. My God, where are you? Why do you stand at a distance? Can anyone relate to that? That's a lament. And in the Psalms, it is just as equal as worship as praise. It's two sides of the spectrum. Listen to the lament of Psalm 137. When the people of God were taken captive by the Babylonians, it says this, by the rivers of Babylon we sat and wept when we remembered Zion. There on the poplars we hung our harps. For there our captors asked us for songs. Our tormentors demanded songs of joy. They said, sing us one of the songs of Zion. And they lamented this. They tormented them, not just because they were their captors, but because when you are in lament, joy can be a mocker. And they used it to mock them. Sing us your great celebratory songs now. Likewise, when you have songs of joy and gratitude and thanksgiving to sing, you don't connect with the songs of grief and sorrow. We need both of these to have a well-balanced worship diet in the church. So this is my exhortation to you, songwriters, singers, poets, musicians. You, I'm, I'm tasking you to come up with skillful, wonderful songs, but I'm also tasking you to do it from the heart. And when you do it from the heart, you will recognize the full spectrum of the human experience, and you will not only compose songs of joy and thanksgiving and gratitude, but you will compose songs of lament and sorrow and grief, and then we will be a better people of God for that. Because it is, my God, how great thou art. And equally it is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? If you can't tell, I'm passionate about that point. Third obstacle to the expression of the heart is we live in a culture of entertainment. It's just everywhere we are. It's, it's entertain me, 
It's, it's, it's I'm a consumer, it's I sit and I watch and I sit and I observe and I critique and if I liked it, it's you, 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 know, you get a good review and if I didn't like it, you don't get a good review. I mean, this is everywhere we are. It's just in the water, so we have to kind of swim upstream against it. I remember me and my wife going to a, a hotel in the last year in Asheville and having a really great time, but immediately the next day when we left, I got an email and it was like, give us a review. Would you consider giving us five stars? And then I remember like just right after that, it really stuck out to me because I was at a place here local in Lexington. I'm not gonna tell you who it is, but I remember leaving that place and I got a text message because I had signed up for some things and it was just like this, like give us a five-star review. And I gotta tell you, friends, just be honest, I'm a little stingy with my stars. <laughs> like I just don't, I don't automatically throw out a five-star review because you asked me to, right? And I thought to myself, well, I could give you a four star because of this. And I didn't give them any reviews at the time. It just stuck out to me. We are in a culture of entertainment. So it says, come and observe and consume. And then as you leave, rate how it went for you. And we do that here. How was the worship? How was the sermon? How was the study? How was this? We also do that with, with kids all the time. And it's really hard because it's just a natural thing that we say. I often say it to my kids like, did you have fun? That's like a sure recipe for depression, by the way. Because like we're building it inside of their minds just to always be evaluating whether they had a good time or not. Like I'm always supposed to be like, am I having a good time or not? You don't have a good time at every, everything, everywhere. What about school? Like how about for summer, right? We're out for summer, praise God. <clears throat> what about different questions like, did you learn anything? Did you hear a new perspective today that challenged an old perspective you had that made you think differently about the world? Did you feel anything? Is there anything that caused you to maybe lean differently in the way that you live today? I don't recommend those are like third grade questions, but you know, as they go along. And so it's difficult to swim against the grain of a culture of entertainment. One of our core values here is participation over observation. And in worship, sometimes we get this notion because of the culture of entertainment that you're the audience out there. But that's just not true. God is the audience and we're all the participants. We're all participating in worship. We're helping here to prompt, but we're all responsible to engage in worship. The fourth obstacle to an engaged heart in worship through song is quite simply this. We just need a changed heart. We need a new one. Our hearts are broken and fallen. The Bible's very clear about that. One theologian put it like this. There's two main loves. The love of God unto the forgetfulness of self and the love of self unto the forgetfulness of God. So when we start to, 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 to engage in, in love and in relationships with people, it's all a selfish love. It just is. It's a need love. Like, I love you for what you can what you can give to me. I love you because you feed my ego. I love you because you give me affirmation. Like sometimes we do premarital counseling, me and my wife do with younger couples, and they're just like, we just love each other unconditionally. And I'm like, well, well. Like I don't burst their bubble because life's gonna do that for them later on. But, but it's really a need love, if it's a selfish love. But as we allow our God to enter into our hearts and transform us, and as we surrender to him and we die to that ego, when we die to that self, we actually start to love God for God's sake and we love others for others' sake and we love things in their proper order so that we're not using our career or our family or our spouses or our accomplishments just to boost our ego. We're actually loving them in the proper way. 
and our hearts are being transformed to have proper order and proper desires, that's what sanctification is. It's a new heart, and we need a new heart continually. And the more that becomes transformed, the more we worship things, God properly, and other things fall into place. Psalm 37.4 says, delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that I delight myself in God and I really desire a BMW, so I'm going to get a BMW, right? That may happen, and good on you. But what the text means is the more I delight myself in God, the more my desires are changed, and he gives me new desires for himself and the creation in a proper, healthy order. How do we do that? What are three ways forward and three things that we need to know so that we can actually have a heart that delights ourselves in God and as we delight ourselves in God, we will declare that delight out of our mouths. First, we need to realize our worship is presented through Jesus. We need to realize our worship is presented through Jesus. The Bible says that Jesus is our high priest. And what is a high priest and what does a high priest do? That's coming from the Old Testament. So if we go all the way back in the Old Testament and we look at what the role of the high priest was in the nation of Israel, the high priest stood as an in-between, as a mediator, a go-between between the people of God and God himself. So they would take the prayers and the intercessions and the sacrifices of the sinful, broken, fallen community of faith, the redeemed community of faith, and they would take those and they would offer them unto God, and because of the blood of the sacrifices and the role of the high priest, it would then be acceptable to God, and God would accept them like that. So the New Testament says that Jesus is our high priest. So similarly, we as the redeemed community, yet fallen, yet broken, still having sinful hearts in need of change, being changed, we bring our prayers, we bring our obedience, we bring our faithfulness, and it's presented to the Father through Jesus. It's acceptable, not because of what we've done, not because we we live perfect lives, not because, oh, I read my Bible every day this week and I prayed every day this week, or I didn't do that every day this week, so now I'm not worthy. All of it is accepted and acceptable because it's presented to the Father through the high priest, who is Jesus. That's the gospel. That's the good news. If we don't get that, we will be living and worshiping in a relationship of works. We'll be works-based worshipers. We'll be miserable. It's oppressive. It's straight from hell. We'll be trying to measure up and measure up and constantly looking where we didn't measure up and then we'll come in and we'll be beat up and bruised and we'll feel unworthy and ashamed. We'll be like, I don't even know if I can worship this morning because look at my life this week. That's not the gospel. That's religion. It's oppressive. That's not relationship with Jesus. Relationship with Jesus looks a little bit different. Maybe it looks something like this. We are in the season of graduation, right? When I was growing up, I was born in 79, child of the 80s. We only had one graduation. It was if you were graduating high school. Now, everybody graduates something. Kindergarten graduate, fifth grade graduation, eighth grade graduation. You fell all your classes. You're still walking across the stage. Everybody gets to graduate. We're not gonna hurt anybody's feelings today, so you graduate. And we've been to several graduations in the past two weeks, fifth grade graduation, eighth grade graduation. 
And my son, he's in seventh grade, but he didn't graduate. I mean, he did graduate seventh grade, but uh, he had a, a, a championship that he was playing in flag football. So we have a lot of celebration going on. And at the fifth grade graduation, uh, when, when my daughter walked by and they called her name, I was just so proud. I was so proud. I was like, that's, that's our daughter. That's my daughter. I'm so proud of her. And then she got an award and I didn't know she was going to get an award and it was outstanding in writing. And I was like, that's right. Woohoo. And I'm like shouting, you know, you're supposed to hold your applause and stuff until... Everybody goes through, I'm that guy. And I'm shouting like, well, yeah, you go. And then we went to our eighth grade uh, daughter's graduation and she got up there and, and she's very academically built. And so I knew she was gonna get some type of awards, but I'm sitting down, everybody's sitting down and they call her name and I'm like, that's right. I'm so proud, I'm so proud. And then they called award number one and then they called award number two and then they called award number three and I couldn't take it anymore. I stood right up with my hands straight up in the air and then they called award number four and I was like, yeah, you go, let's go, good job. And I'm shouting it out and I'm so proud of her. And then our son won his flag football championship game and I'm like, yeah, you go, B, good job, good interception, let's go. I'm the, I'm the problem, it's me, right? <laughs> and I was so proud of each one of them and each of their accomplishments, but guess what? If they never got any of those things, it would not change one bit my delight in who they are because they're my kids, they're my children. And we have got to stop trying to measure up and get approval and try to work our way into God's good favor. And we've got to stop focusing on all of our failures too because as we just sang, we're in the Father's house. We're checking our sin and shame at the door. It's not because we've lived perfect lives throughout the week. It's because of what Jesus did on the cross that we get to actually walk in, heads held high, shoulders back because of Jesus. I also said intentionally, we need to realize that our worship is presented through Jesus, not just my worship. Our worship is presented through Jesus. It's a communal activity. And that's important to remember because there will be days in our lives where we are so crushed in spirit that we don't have a song to sing. We can't even lament. We can't even cry out. We can't even utter any words. But guess what? We come in here and the community of faith sings and when we don't have a song to sing and I'm thoroughly convinced this is biblical, we ride on the wings of someone else's song. That's why it's important for me to sing because you can ride on those wings and for you to sing because some days I'm gonna need you and I'm gonna ride on those wings of that song and Jesus takes it all as a collective whole because we're not just individuals, we are part of a community and he receives it and presents it to the Father. We need to realize our worship is presented through Jesus. Secondly, we need to realize our worship is changing us. Our worship is actually literally, I use that word intentionally, changing us. Jim, Pastor Jim, who wrote the book that we're going through, he says this in, uh, on page 103. He says that the benefits of singing have shown that it boosts memory that when we sing together, it boosts the mind and it boosts memory. And one of my professors, uh, obviously, he, he, he agreed with this. And he said, people aren't going to remember your little sermons throughout the week. They sing their theology. They're going to sing what they have throughout the week. Something in the, in the worship set is going to stick with them. And it's going to provide an anchor for them. It boosts memory. Secondly, he says, it boosts your immune system. 
There were studies done at the University of California where they were researching a choir that was singing together. And when they rehearsed, it increased their disease-fighting proteins by 150%. And when they performed at their choir concert, it increased their disease-fighting proteins by 240%. Collective engagement in singing, not just listening, but singing, actually increases your immune system. It changes us. You, you, you know this, you, you, you come to, to, to church and we sing and we engage and you, and you listen and then you close with singing and you leave and you kind of have this Sunday high. You, you walk out and you're like, I feel different. That's because quite literally our cells are changing, our hearts are changing, our minds are changing. It may not be this massive conversion experience, but yeah, you're different from when you came. N.T. Wright put it like this, all singers discover that to use the human body as a musical instrument is physically, emotionally, and mentally transformative in a way that nothing else quite is. Physically, emotionally, and mentally transformative in a way that nothing else quite is. And what I am trying to say is this, we sing ourselves into the people we wanna be. We sing ourselves into the people we wanna be. We don't always come ready to sing. We're not always like, oh, heart's really engaged, heart's feeling it, I'm prepared, I'm ready to go, let's go. We come into church, we got a lot of burdens. You might have had some struggles getting the kids to church today or getting yourself to church today, and you come in and your mind's all over the place, but guess what? You're not the type of person that we say we are, but as we sing and as we put those truths in our mind and as the doctrine there fills our minds and our hearts, we actually become the type of person that we're singing about. It changes us. Lastly, we need to realize our weekend worship reflects our weekday worship. Our weekend worship reflects our weekday worship. They're related to each other. Our personal daily worship and our corporate weekend worship, they're related to each other, they feed each other. Imagine this, imagine you're a, a restaurant owner, or you're a chef, and your thing you're known for in the community is Sunday brunch and you do Sunday brunch better than anybody else, and everybody comes to Sunday brunch, and that's the big thing you look forward to and you do all week, uh, or on the weekends, but guess what? You're also serving throughout the day. You're doing food prep, and you're serving meals, and you're serving breakfast, and you're serving lunch, and you're putting meals out there, and you're practicing it, and you're serving the food, but you're also doing it as a preparation for Sunday brunch, and they feed each other. And what I'm saying is this, Throughout the week, we have to cultivate space in our heart, space in our schedule, time where we can have some scripture meditation, some listening, some prayer, some journaling, some communal activity, communal Bible study, people speaking into our lives, holding us accountable, us holding others accountable, loving each other well. We need this in our lives. That is our personal daily worship, and that fuels and that feeds our corporate weekend worship. Let me, let me say it a little bit, maybe a bit harder. If we don't have anything going on throughout the week, if we're not making any space for God to abide in Christ and to put his truth into our minds and to walk with him and to try to surrender to him in our relationships, if we're not doing any of that, of course our weekend worship experience will fall flat. They feed each other, they fuel each other. Psalm 112 one says this, praise the Lord, blessed are those who fear the Lord, who find great delight in his commands. 
And the more our hearts are changed, the more we begin to walk in step with God's rhythms and God's ways, and the more we're working with the grain of all creation, the more we delight in those things, it actually fuels our worship for the weekends. And we start to join in the chorus with all creation, reflecting the goodness of the creator back to him with our hearts, with our mouths, we become a worshiping, transformed community. My heartbeat for us in this series looks something like this. We don't have to be perfect singers. We don't have to have a great skill set, but I do want us to sing with soul. And maybe like Yashka, our voice might be thin. It might break a little bit. There might be other people who are better at whatever but we're doing the work of engaging with our soul and our whole being, saying, God, I am a unified whole person, body, mind, spirit, soul, and I'm gonna give you what I can. You've given me everything on the cross. You've given us everything we need to be acceptable to you, so set me free from the oppression of trying to earn my way into your favor. And I wanna live lighthearted and free because of the gospel of grace. And I wanna honor what's going on in my life, whether it be desperation and sorrow and grief or joy and excitement and praise. Teach me how to sing like that. Teach me how to engage with my whole heart. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the gift of music, the gift of song. We thank you for the gift of our lives, who we are, body, heart, mind. You created us. We are wonderfully and fearfully made. We are precious to you. We belong to you. Even with fallen and broken hearts and desires that still need to be reordered, we're not acceptable because we've figured it all out and because our motives are always pure. We're acceptable because of you. Make us secure in that. Make us secure that we are loved and we will always be loved. Not based on any performance, but based on your performance. That you obeyed perfectly and you willfully chose death and suffering on our behalf. And you rose so that we can have confidence that we will rise too. That our hearts will one day be whole and healed and there will be no need for grief or mourning because there'll be no sickness or sorrow or death. Put that in our minds and in our hearts this week. We pray in Christ's name, amen.